Our scripture today comes from the second, uh, second chapter of Luke and is a continuation of where we have been telling last week and this week. This is the second time Jesus is in the temple in his life, at least as recorded, and he's 12. Thus it reads, if you wanted to follow, it's 725 in the hymnal, or the Bible. Every year, his parents went to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning from home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But he, they were unaware of this. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on a day. Then they began looking for him among their friends and relatives. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at, how he, at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw them, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to him. them. Then they went to Nazareth. And he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. His mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Amen. So one of my general rules is I like to only present factual information unless, uh, you know, when bringing in historical information. I want it to be factual. And so I check and double check. And if it's not exactly true, I like to tell you that it's a fable or a mythic tale or something. Well, I tried really hard to figure out this opening fact, and I couldn't. Because it seems like every archaeologist and their mother has a different opinion about the size of Jerusalem. I've heard facts that it's only about 25,000 people living in Jerusalem around Jesus' life swelling up to larger crowds. But I will tell you that Josephus tells us that it's about a million to two million people at the large sides. I will tell you, a million to two million people in about one square mile is a whole lot of people in a square mile. Especially considering that, you know, that square mile also has walls and roads and all kinds of things. So I might go with the low number. Jerusalem's about 25,000 people, give or take. We're talking about the size of Worcester, although within a fairly small area. And it grew. Every year around Passover and Yom Kippur, it would grow to three, four, five times that size. So we're talking now about the size of Dayton, Ohio, in a square mile. That's the kind of place it was when Jesus was taken there at 12 years old. He may have made that trip many times. The Bible actually tells us that Mary and Joseph traveled regularly down to Jerusalem for the Holy Week. 
I'd have no idea if Jesus came every single time or now that he was 12, this was his time to finally be a full part of this service. After all, at 12, he's basically considered an adult. Maybe he went every year. We don't know. But I can tell you something about 12-year-olds. They usually don't want to hang out with mom and dad. I think that's fairly true. I'm looking at the parents around. I'm seeing a lot of nodding heads. Yeah, 12-year-olds, they'd rather be with friends. I, I, I remember I started attending University Baptist and Brethren Church when I was about 12. We went there because dad started, uh, he, he became the, the uh, I, I, Christian education director there. And they sat somewhere around there. And I could only remember that because I've been up here practicing this sermon all morning. And I finally remembered where they sat because it was right next to a heater, which was right about there. But I hardly ever sat there. I sat back there, about the same row that Sister Josie is in. Or Sister Grace. I'm having a brain. Uh, huh? Grace. Grace. Thank you, Grace. I'm sorry. I was just having a moment. Uh, but all the end. Because that's where my buddy David sat. And I always sat with David if I could help it. I didn't want to be with mom and dad. I bet Jesus was fairly the same. He's there. He is not the only Nazareth kid there. Most of Nazareth have come down. A lot of the adults and probably every other 12-year-old boy. And they're in a new city, in a new place. I bet he wanted to hang out with his friends. So... Passover happens. He celebrates it with his family. And it ends. This is a lot of guesstimation now. Because we don't really know exactly what happens. But they start to travel back. And maybe, maybe his younger brothers were there. We know he has younger brothers and sisters. We know of James and Jude, for instance. Maybe Jude was four years old. And mom was constantly running after him. And and James was always bugging dad with questions. They didn't need to worry about Jesus. Jesus is 12. He can handle things himself. They get up in the morning. They see Jesus for breakfast. Remind him they're going that day. And then they, along with all the other Nazareans, probably some people from throughout Galilee, start the trek back up to Galilee. I've heard it was tradition often then that the, the women would walk together with the younger children and the men would walk separately. Perhaps that's what happened. And Mary thought, oh, he's 12. He's a man. He's probably walking up with his dad. Joseph was probably thinking, he's just 12. Maybe he's helping mom with James. We all know that James, he was a problem. Not really. Well... They get to the end of their first day of travel. The family all gathers together and they realize that Jesus isn't with either of them. Maybe they went and found the other, you know, pre-adolescent boys. Is Jesus with you guys? No. They probably then go find Aunt Margaret, say, hey, take the little ones, go ahead on up to Nazareth. We're going back for Jesus. And so they travel. Back. I mean, they are a whole day's walk. I'm guessing the walk back was faster, just a guess, fueled by anger and anxiety. They get back to Jerusalem looking for their child. And the Bible tells us it's on day three they finally find him. 
unclear whether that means that Jesus was missing for five days or if it was, you know, they walked out one day, walked back one day, and they found him on the day they got, the day after that. Don't really know. But they finally find him. I can only imagine the level of terror and anger they were feeling. I, I remember when I was eight or nine, somewhere around there, most family trips were visiting extended family, but whenever camps met, the uh, outdoor, outdoor Ministry Association, that's the Church of the Brethren camp group, met in Florida, all of the kids came, all the director's kids came, and we got the run of the, you know, the camp, Camp Ithiel. Ran around, played, had a great time. It's November. It's a good time to be in Florida, right? It's not super hot, not super cold, and it's a lot better than central Pennsylvania in November. So we had the run of the place, and our parents could say that the drive down was a business expense, therefore saving a little extra money so they could take us half an hour down the road from Camp Ithiel to the Magic Kingdom. We got there first thing in the morning. Like we were there before the gates opened. So we were gathered there waiting and then the trumpets sound, the music starts playing and the gates slowly swing open to reveal, you know, downtown USA or where they call the main strip right in and you can see the castle and you see Mickey and all the friends running around. I remember being in awe. And then I remember being in absolute terror because as the gates opened and people rushed in, Somewhere along the lines, I became separated from my family. It was probably only about a minute or so. It felt like an eternity, you know, looking back. But I was all by myself in a strange place, in a crowd in Florida. An alligator could have gotten me. Okay, maybe not. I mean, if you're going to lose a child somewhere, Disney's probably one of the better places because it's Disney, it's full of staff members and security, you're not going to be terribly lost for long. They're going to find you, one way or the other. Probably not in the alligator, but I wouldn't trust that one that hangs out near Peter Pan. He's got a taste for hands. Anyway, my parents found me, and I've now experienced this as an adult, there is that moment of terror when you have lost sight of your child and you know they can be in danger. And then when you find them, there is a moment of relief, but that terror, all of that emotion is still there and in looking for an escape route. And that escape route is usually anger. Yeah, my parents were pretty annoyed, as we would say in our family. I would call it far more than annoyed, but that's the kind of language we use. My parents were quite annoyed. Can you imagine for Mary and Joseph losing a child for three days in a city? A city full of travelers. A city that is a place of commerce, of government, of religious power. Constant caravans and pilgrims and officials and all these moving in and out. Jesus could have been hurt and in some back corner you know, in some alleyway. Jesus could have been hurt and is being taken care of in someone's house. How would you figure that out? Jesus could have been kidnapped or enslaved. 
he could already be paddling a trireme halfway to Rome. Imagine that level of anxiety of losing your 12-year-old child out in a place like that. It's no wonder that Mary sounds a little angry when she finally finds him. I imagine her running up and grasping him in a bear hug, crying, and then reaching out and grabbing his cheeks and shaking his head, going, how dare you do this to us? He was only 12. It was still peach fuzz, not a beard, I guess. Now, I, I have to admit, I don't like Jesus' response. It sounds a little cold, a little like, come on, Mom and Dad, don't make such a big deal out of it. Maybe that's me as an adult, and as a 12-year-old, I would have been more like him. Because I, 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 I remember 12-year-old isn't exactly the most empathetic age of a child. But still... His response in Greek actually comes off a little kinder. It reminds me of, uh, you know, if, if you were ever to lose me as a 12-year-old in a mall, I can tell you where I would be. I'd be in the, in the bookstore. If it was today's thing, I'd probably be in the Apple store. You know, if I, if I lost Gracie in, say, Hartville Hardware, I know exactly where she is. She's either in the toy section or she's running in and out of the little house in the middle of the building because she likes to jump up and down on the grass and run up and down on the ramp. I know where she's at. Mom, Dad, I was here in Jerusalem. Where else would I be? I'd be right here in the temple talking. Tells us a lot about Jesus the kind of person he was. Yeah, he would probably be the kid in the modern day if there were still bookstores in malls, if there were still malls. You know, that's where he would be if you lost him there. Now, I know being a Galilean becomes a bit of a running joke throughout the Gospels. Whenever they encounter Jesus or the disciples, they go, who are these guys? How can they talk so well? They're Galileans. People from Judea, from Jerusalem, looked down on Galileans. They saw them as less sophisticated, less educated. That's not really true. Galilee was not exactly a backwater, just looked down on by those, the more urbane Jerusalem. Galilee, after all, was in its own trading crossroads. They had connections to the outside world. And Galilee was the heartland of the Pharisees. You know, if you lived in Jerusalem, you might be more associated with the Sadducees or the Pharisees. In Galilee, you were a Pharisee. Or you were a zealot, which was basically Pharisee with knives. So at five years old, Jesus would have entered school. He probably was one of the luckier ones who learned how to actually read and write. And it looks like actually a very small population ever learned to do that. For the most part, they just learned 
the scriptures orally, some guy up there who knew how to read and write or had memorized the scriptures, teaching the five-year-olds to memorize it too, which I have to say is pretty impressive for five-year-olds to memorize the Torah. But from five to ten, they would have spent that time doing that, and at ten, they would have begin to... And begin to learn how to interpret the scripture, how to live it. That was something the Pharisees were really into. They wanted people to be able to interpret and argue the scripture. That's where Jesus is at his education. When he would turn 13, if he is talented enough, he would continue his education. If he wasn't as talented, he would probably drop out of school and would just study underneath his dad. Jesus was probably already at the age of 10, already learning to be whatever exactly his dad was. A, a carpenter is what we call Joseph, but the word could mean stonemason or other things. So Jesus is probably already learning that a bit, but he's also, well, he's also someone who has been able to succeed in this interpretation. And we know that he actually continues to succeed because he's called rabbi. And you don't just call some random guy rabbi. Rabbi is something you earn by learning underneath another rabbi, which means that he continued studying while he was 13, 15, 17, 18, 16 too, I guess. That tells us, that tells us that Jesus takes his faith seriously. Of all the places he could go in Jerusalem, he goes up to the temple and he sits there and he questions the elders who live there, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, who spend all day sitting around the temple arguing among each other about the minutiae of faith. Jesus goes there. This is essentially the kid who stays at school late to go to English class and debate with their English teacher about the finer points of Moby Dick, right? That's the kind of person Jesus is. There's a lot of debate about when Jesus understood who he was. There's a ton of debate. Some people will say he always knew from the moment he was born there are others who say he grows into that knowledge. And there are still others that say that he gains that knowledge upon the moment of baptism and when the dove lands upon him. That that's when he understands who he is. We don't know. But whether he understood or not at that time, his heart is still continually drawn towards God. His heart is continually drawn towards understanding the scriptures. He studies diligently. And he has an understanding that at 12 years old amazes those who are far older than him. We don't know whether he was giving them new information or not, or whether he was just telling them profound ideas that they just did not expect to come out of a 12-year-old. It's strange to think of a child so young already beginning the process for the ministry that he will eventually be a part of. You know, Jesus won't be back in the temple, according to Luke. 
And he might be going back yearly as he grows up, as he, as he continues to come up for various festivals. But we don't learn at the next time that he will be sitting there and teaching people until right at the end. In the Gospel of Luke, it's the final days. It's at that moment that I think that Mary's terror would be justified. After all, when he goes back the next time and teaches, he is going to rile up the ire of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Romans. The next time he is going to spark their rage and that will boil over and lead to his execution. Perhaps Mary was afraid, partially, because he was already there. And she already knew that, you know, from the scriptures, Mary would have been trained the same way Jesus had been up until the age of 10. She would have memorized all of the Torah, just as he had. She would have heard the words of Isaiah, just as he had. We know from her Magnificat that she knew that this child that was to be born, this Messiah, was going to overturn the world. Perhaps she feared that at the age of 12, he was already going to start doing that. I think I would be terrified. I mean, I can only imagine any parent, the thought that your child is going into a place where potentially they would make enemies, where potentially it could lead to their execution. That's terrifying. But that is not the response of the people Jesus is talking to. It's not the response of the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are sitting there listening to this young man. Instead, they are awed. They are awed by his ideas, by his concepts, by his view of those scriptures. It couldn't, I don't think it was terribly different than what he is going to come and say, a, you know, a decade and a bit later. Two decades later, actually. It's not going to be terribly different. And yet here, out of this child, they accept the ideas that he's going to say. They hear him. But they don't change. I think that's the real message within this story, is that they do not change. They hear the words, but they do not hear the words. It's like when you invite, you know, a youth Sunday. And the youth get up here and they deliver a powerful sermon. And everyone says, my God, that child is articulate. Not actually hearing the words they're saying. And that's the challenge for us. The challenge for us is to hear the words that are being said, no matter the age of the person. Because there were probably close, if not more than 100,000 
people in that city. And none of them heard the words of this young man who will change their world. So what are we missing today? Where are the words of God being spoken out of vessels we do not expect? And are we listening to that? And where do we allow our emotions, our fear, our anger, our terror, hold us back from hearing those words as well? It will be another 22 years, or now just 20 years, about 32, 33, Jesus will enter that place again. He will amaze people again. It will lead to his execution this time. And Mary will stand at the foot of that cross and say goodbye to her son. But this time, his words are heard. This time, his words are followed. And thus begins the kingdom of heaven to blossom to bloom, to grow. Let's open our ears to the voices who are speaking today and not ignore their pleas. Thank you. There is a, a particular cartoon that Gracie loves called Bluey. My wife's rolling her eyes at me right now because I am a huge fan of Bluey. And the main reason being is it's not just a show about the kids and their adventures, but it's a show about a family trying to be a family together. And everyone's realistic. There is no you know, dad who's really dumb or mom who um, you know, knows the answers to everything. It, it's not, there's no Homer Simpson and there's no, um, I can't remember the name of Leave it to Beaver's dad. He's just a regular dad. She's just a regular mom. And they're just trying their best. And it reminds me often to open my ears. Because so often the mistakes I make as a father is I forget to listen to what my child is telling me. You know, I just, I just want to do this or that. I just want to sit and do my work. I just want to read this book. I just want to watch this show. I just want to do the, um, you know, do something in the yard. And it reminds me that I need to listen to what she says and to treasure that. It's easy for us to always get caught up in the here and the now, to get caught up in knowing that we always listen to that person and this person's just a kid. God challenges us to hear every single person, to stop and take our time and really listen. So stop and listen. Listen to all the voices. Listen to their opinions. Listen to their worries. Listen to their concerns. Listen to their joys. Don't be like those men sitting around and miss the message. 
Because we never know who God's going to speak through. So stop and listen. Amen.